0: Welcome back to the Exploring Faith and Pursuing Grace podcast. I am Lee Grant, or as Kevin calls me, Dr. Lee Grant. I don't know why he calls me that, but he does. And today's episode is going to be a little bit different. You know, in our last episode that aired last week, we had three guests on. There were five of us talking, sometimes all at the same time, but mostly it was uh, one person talking at a time. And this week you get me and me alone. Kevin is not joining us on this podcast. He's busy doing whatever it is Kevin does. I know he's listening to it, so hey brother, how you doing? In any case, today I'm going to be flying solo on this. Um, I thought that it would be valuable and hopefully interesting to some of our listeners who may not know me to hear my story and to hear about my upbringing, my foray into legalism, as well as my foray out of legalism. Now, with that, I'd like to say that the feedback that we have gotten on this podcast has been overwhelmingly positive. We have received word from so many people around the country that have shared with us how much of a blessing this podcast has been to them. And because it's been such a blessing to them, I know that's really been an encouragement to Kevin. It's been an encouragement to myself. We're both thrilled that we've been able to touch so many lives and, and so many hearts And We hope to be able to continue to do that and would love for you to share this podcast with others, let people know about it, spread the word far and wide about it if you think that this is something that others could benefit from. We've received well over 2,000 downloads as of this recording, which is really, really cool. We're both really thrilled with that. And Even though the overwhelming majority of our feedback has been positive, we've received a little bit of negative feedback as well. It took a little longer for that to happen, but we figured it would at some point and one of the pieces of negative feedback that we received is that there's some consternation and some uh, angst against the word that was used legalist um, there's some people who said they don't like that word being used and I'll get into why I think that's actually a fair term to use later but for those that are listening whether you agree with what we say whether you agree with what we do or not we appreciate you listening and we encourage everyone to who's out there that listens to this, to listen with an open mind, listen to this podcast with an open mind and with an open heart. And you may find yourself agreeing with much of what we say, and you may find yourself disagreeing with some of what we say. And that's okay. Disagree with us, agree with us, whatever, reach out to us, let us know, let's have a dialogue. Let's see if we can open up some doors of understanding between us and our listeners and whoever else is out there. Because As I'm sure many will agree, there's much too much division in this world right now, and we would do well if we could converse together and, as the Scriptures say, come together and reason together with one another. So with that little bit of rambling preamble, today you're going to hear about my story. It all started on a dark and stormy night way back in my... No, not really. (laughs) That's not really how it started. I don't know if it was a dark and stormy night on the night that I was born, but we're not going to go back quite that far. So a little bit about me, I have been raised, or I was raised in a religious home for the entirety of my life. I've been religious for the majority of my life, with the exception of a brief period of time that we'll talk about shortly. But I grew up in a religious home, and from the time I was brought home from the hospital, as soon as my mother was able to take me to church, I was at church. I was raised in church, I was raised in a religious household, in a loving household, and faith was a part of my upbringing from day one. It wasn't something that was negotiable for us. Um, My family, the, the entirety of my family were all people who love the Lord. They were all people, and they are people, who care about their faith. It's a deep part of their lives. It's intrinsically connected to who they are, and it's a part of their identity. And growing up in small town Oklahoma, we were part of a charismatic church. Um, I grew up Pentecostal. Now, this wasn't Pentecostal faith or a church that was associated with any other Pentecostal group. It wasn't United Pentecostal Holiness or or Church of God or Assemblies of God or anything like that. It was its own independent church in southern Oklahoma, in Ringling, Oklahoma. And what made this particular church unique was its doctrinal position on the Godhead. Um, This particular brand of Pentecostalism that I grew up in is referred to as oneness Pentecostalism, Jesus only, or Jesus' name. And the idea behind this idea, the idea behind this idea, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. No, the the primary thrust of this doctrine is the idea that Jesus is God. Now, no one's going to disagree with that in greater Christendom, if you want to use that term, but where the point that I grew up with, the doctrine I grew up with diverged from that general consensus is the idea that Jesus is the Father. God the Father and Christ the Son are not two separate entities. They are one and the same. Jesus is also the Holy Spirit, hence the term Jesus only. The idea is is that Jesus is the name of the Father, Jesus is the name of the Son, and Jesus is the name of the Holy Spirit. And the idea behind this comes from Matthew chapter 28, and verse 19, where Jesus, after his death and his resurrection, before he ascends back into heaven, says to his disciples, go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name. And that, the emphasis would always be put like that in the sermon, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then the question would be, well, then what's that name? And then you'd point over there to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, where Jesus said, or where Peter said rather, to those who he preached to on the day of Pentecost, they interrupted him on that day whenever he's preaching to them about Jesus, how he's the Messiah that they had longed for for so long. And they interrupt him in the middle of his sermon. They said, Okay, Peter, what should we do in verse 37? And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter says, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name, there's in the name again, of Jesus Christ. So the logic goes, well then, Jesus must be the name of the Father, Jesus is the name of the Son, Jesus is the name of the Holy Spirit. Now, that made perfect sense to me growing up, and it made sense to me because whatever you were raised to believe, it will make sense to you. If you're a Muslim living overseas in the middle of Saudi Arabia, it's going to make sense to you that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet because that's what you're raised to believe. And oftentimes, we don't question the beliefs that we grow up with. I never did. To me, all of the logic or supposed logic that was, that was given to illustrate that idea of the oneness of the Godhead was something that I took for granted. I took it at face value. That was the lens through which I viewed Scripture. It colored all of my interpretation of Scripture. And there was no interpretation that would work apart from that oneness paradigm, Now, in that, what's interesting is, is I saw some legalism there. Now, I'm very fortunate to say that my mother and father who raised me were not and are not legalistic. That's not a perception or a mentality that either one of them possess. One of the things that I can say about my upbringing and my mom and dad is they always encouraged me. They always encouraged my siblings to think and to think critically I can remember my mother telling me when it came to, you know, the oneness of the Godhead or the necessity of baptism, don't just take my word for it. Don't just believe this because I'm telling you to believe this. Study it for yourself. And if it's truth, the truth will stand on its own merits. I can remember my dad telling me the same thing. Don't just believe this because this is what I believe. Don't just believe this because this is what I'm telling you. Study it. And if it's true, it'll stand up to the test. And if it's not true, it won't. Even so, in that church that I grew up in, there were some legalistic, and I say that in air quotes, factions. Where we were all united in that era was on our mentality and our ideology related to the Godhead. But there were some in our group that believed, as many mainline Pentecostals believe, that you're not saved unless you manifest an outward expression of the gifts of the Spirit. You're not saved, in other words, unless you speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you see, that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't speak in tongues, you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, which ironically is Jesus under that paradigm, but if you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, well, then you're really not saved. But there were others in our group that didn't believe that. They took what Paul said, do all speak in tongues, which is a rhetorical question from 1 Corinthians, and the answer, of course, was no. So my family fell into that category. We didn't believe that speaking in tongues was a prerequisite or a sign of salvation. It wasn't something that was absolutely necessary to confirm that one had indeed been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And what's really interesting is that there were even some other people who believe as the churches of Christ believe, and as, and as we believe, and as even I believe, that women are to remain silent in the churches. And that was something that some of our people believed in that church, others didn't. We would have women that would get up and that would speak, that would testify, that would preach, and then there are others that didn't think that that was right. But we were all united and we were all unified under that oneness paradigm. That's what I grew up with. We valued Scripture. I can remember that the about the only stories that I ever read growing up were Bible stories, the little arch books, the little children's books that tell the story of Daniel in the lion's den and of Noah in the ark and of David and Goliath and of Samson and Delilah. And yeah, Samson and Delilah, that's really not a children's story if you think about it. I had a big picture Bible that my dad bought for my brother and I in maybe 1988 or 1989, and I can remember those panels. It was almost like a comic book where each Bible story was told in 12 panels. I mean, we were dipped in the Word. We were immersed in it. Part of We were homeschooled. I was homeschooled throughout the entirety of my education, and a part of our homeschool curriculum was reading the Bible and studying the Bible we memorized the books of the bible by the time we were 7 or 8 years old i mean it was it, we were deeply entrenched within that philosophy and i remain to this day so thankful for the upbringing that my mother and my father gave me i am so thankful for their desire to instill within me and within my brother and within my sisters the idea that there is a god that he does love you, and he longs to know you and to be known by you. That's something that money can't buy. To have that principle instilled within me has been such a force for good throughout my life, even in some of my darker times that we'll get to momentarily. I can't ignore that even though my beliefs no longer align with the beliefs that I grew up in as it relates to the doctrine of, of the Godhead or the idea of, of spiritual gifts or things like that. And that's something that Kevin and I may get to in this podcast as it, as it moves forward. But needless to say, as I have grown and as I have gotten older and as I have read and studied and met other people and converse with other people, a lot of my perspectives have changed, and, and that's true even then. But the thing that led to my perspectives changing then was tragedy that occurred. Whenever I was about 18 years old, well, a little younger than that in hindsight, I was maybe about 15, 16, things didn't seem right between my mother and my father. It seemed like there was was tension that had built. And there may have been tension before, but I just never noticed it because of the naivety of youth or because my parents were good parents and they tried to shield me from it. But as you get older, you become more perceptive. As you mature and you get to know your parents on a new level, you begin to see things that you may have missed before. And at about 15 or 16 years of age, things just weren't the same. Things just weren't right. And there was tension that built between my mother and father. And without getting into all of that that happened, they ended up divorcing when I was about 17. 17 is about when it started. And then I was 18 whenever it happened. And that... Was one of those benchmark moments in my life that changed everything. It changed my entire perspective on so many things. It shook me because I had always been under the impression that, you know, we are a Christian family, we are a Christian people, and Christians don't get divorced. Whenever Christians marry, when one Christian marries another Christian and both love the Lord, they will love each other and they will honor that covenant that they have made with one another in the sight of God. And so here I am seeing the, the dissonance between these perspectives. Here's what I have been raised to know for my entire life, but here's what I'm seeing in reality. I'm seeing that two of the most pious people that I know, my mother and my father, two of the most godly people that I know, my mother and my father, they're not living up to the standard that I was raised that one ought to live up to. And the problem with some of that was still my naivety. I didn't really understand that we are all human, that we are all deeply flawed people. My mother was as holy as anyone you'd ever meet. My dad, as good a man as anyone you'll ever know. But what I didn't realize is that both of them are fallen people. Both of them are imperfect. My mother is one of the most amazing women in the world. My dad is one of the most amazing men in the world. They are both some of the best people ever, but my mother is a flawed person. My dad is a flawed person. And there were issues that arose in that relationship that could not be moved past. They could not be reconciled, and they divorced. But I didn't realize that at the time. What I saw was a disconnect between what I had been raised to believe and what I had been raised to know, and the reality of my situation. And then I began to question everything that I had been raised with. Not not even the idea. Not the doctrinal positions. Not the oneness or the the gifts of the Holy Spirit or speaking in tongues or baptism or anything like that I began to question the undergirding behind all that if all of this that I have been raised with is the truth and this is how these people behave in stark contrast to what the Bible teaches well then is there anything to the Bible at all it shook my worldview it completely rattled the faith that I had and in hindsight now I realize that that faith wasn't really faith in Christ It wasn't faith in Jesus. It wasn't faith in God. It was faith in the structure. It was faith in the institution. It was faith in my parents. It wasn't my own faith, but I didn't know that at the time. And at that moment, I abandoned faith. I left it behind. At that point, at 18, 19 years old, I began to do all of the things that wild and crazy 18 and 19-year-olds are known to do. I began to drink. I began to party. I began to enjoy the the uh what what is it was the bible call it the 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 sin for a season i can't remember the exact term but something along those lines I, I began to enjoy the fruit of that sin i began to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season there it is it came back to me a friend of mine and i went to cancun i remember maybe a third of that trip we drank like fish it's a wonder one of us didn't get alcohol poisoning whenever we were down there but I lived my life. I rejected anything that had to do with God. I rejected anything that had to do with faith. And it was about that time that I started taking classes at the local college. I was beginning to um, forge ahead through higher education. I still didn't really know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to end up, but I started taking anatomy and physiology. And in taking anatomy and physiology, our instructor, who he was deeply influential on me. Because during all this time, I have this instructor. I have this person who's extremely well-read. He's articulate. He's kind. He's funny. He's just, he's he epitomizes or epitomized at that point the kind of man that I wanted to be. And he was an atheist. And so he gave me a couple of books to read, which I read. And I devoted myself for a time to atheism. I had no need for a God that would create such a flawed creation i had no need for a god that would have anything to do whatever with people like us or that would allow people like us to do the things that we do you know all of the classic questions and conundrums that atheists post that was it well even through that time i began to notice that things just still there, there were still some things i couldn't leave behind There was always that nagging bit of doubt in my mind, and this will come into play as as the conversation continues, but I couldn't get past the idea that we couldn't have come from nothing. There's too much, as I went through the studies of physics and chemistry, and as I began to study more about anatomy and physiology and biology and the other sciences, there seems to be so much order amidst the entropy and the chaos that it seems impossible that we could have come from nothing and so there's always that nagging bit of doubt in the back of my mind there was that bit of doubt that said you know there's got to be something more to this than just you know two you know haploid gametes coming together and forming a diploid gamete and growing into a zygote and growing into a fetus and growing into a baby and then basically eating pooping and reproducing and then dying there has to be more to life than that there has to be some meaning and so in the search for that meaning i began to study buddhism i looked at buddhism for a little while and because i was a southern oklahoman boy who was becoming a man and i didn't really have a whole lot of other world experience buddhism just seemed really kooky to me So I left that behind. I began to look at Islam. And after looking at the Koran, there were more issues with the Koran than I ever could think of with the Bible. So I left that behind. And eventually I began to toy with the idea, well, maybe the Christian God isn't so bad after all. But because of the harm that that divorce had done to my worldview, I still wasn't fully willing to go back into it. And that's when the woman that I would marry came into my life. My wife is the most amazing woman that ever lived. And I can say that right now because Kevin's not on here to say, Bethany's the most amazing woman that ever lived. No, as wonderful as my mother is and continues to be, and as wonderful as my stepmother is, my mother and dad, in case you all are wondering, they both have remarried. My stepfather's a wonderful, amazing man. My stepmother is a wonderful, amazing woman. And I am supremely fortunate to have all my dad and my mom and my stepdad and my stepmom all of them in my life and in my kids lives it's great but as wonderful as my mom is and as wonderful as my stepmom is Kim is far better sorry guys if you're listening to it that's just how it is my wife is amazing and she's better than you but I would meet the woman that I would end up marrying and the irony is is that I had met her before and I had known her some years before through a well ex-girlfriend but in any case My wife had just been in a kind of a codependent relationship where she was the strong one carrying him through it, and she just got tired of putting up with him. She had dumped him, and it was hard for her. I had just gotten out of a relationship. It was hard for me, and we started talking. Neither of us really wanted a relationship, and neither one of us really wanted to date, but we still wanted some companionship. We still wanted someone that we could hang out with and visit with and things like that. And now here we are some almost 18 years later with four kids, married for 15 or so years in November. So yeah, things happen. But at that time, neither one of us really wanted a relationship. But as things began to get more serious, she would invite me to church. And I'd say, eh, no, nah, I'm not really interested. And then finally, one day after some persistence, she said, hey, we're having a gospel meeting. For those of you out there who are of different religious traditions, that's like a revival or a special meeting where you get together other than a Wednesday night or a Sunday. You know, a lot of times they'll start on a Sunday and go through Wednesday or they'll start on a Wednesday and go through Sunday or they'll start on a Friday night. She said, we're having a preacher in from Louisiana. Come hear this guy. I think you'll like him. Yeah, I will have anything going on Friday night. Why not? So I went with my wife to church, And I heard this man preach, and I was blown away. He was articulate. He was funny. He was good-looking. And I don't say that about many men, but this guy, he was a handsome fella. Handsome fella. He was well-spoken. He was dynamic. And what he had to say scripturally, biblically, made a lot of sense. And I was so impressed with how polished he was and how effective he was and how well he communicated what he had studied and what he wanted to present. And so after the service, my wife asked me, well, what did you think? I said, he was awesome. He was great. She said, well, do you want to go back tomorrow night, which would have been Saturday? And I said, yeah, let's go back. I said, that sounds great. I'd love to hear him again. So we went back. It was so different for me Because in the faith that I was raised in, and make no mistake, the people that I was raised with in church are some of the kindest, best, good-hearted people you'll ever meet. But there was very little, it seemed as though there was very little preparation made before a brother would get up and would preach. It was almost like it was off the cuff. There was not much preparation given. And so this was, this was a, a big difference for me. You know, I'm hearing someone who's put a lot of time and work into his study, and it shows by what, by what he's given from the pulpit. Well, I'll try to hurry along here and speed this up. One thing leads to another. I began studying with Kim. I began studying with her. And that led to studying with the good people that would eventually become my in-laws. You know, so many people make mother-in-law jokes. I love my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law is one of the best women ever. I mean, maybe on par with my own mother, but anyway, my mother-in-law is awesome. My father-in-law is awesome. They are some of the best people that I have ever had the privilege to know, and I know my life is better for, for them being in it. There's no animosity. There's no angst. There's no frustration with them. They are wonderful, wonderful people. And I'm so blessed for that. I'm so blessed to have in-laws that I love, that I get along with. But I studied with them. And as I studied with them, we would study on different doctrinal issues. We would study on different ideas about the scriptures and about God and about the different principles that you can take from scripture. And eventually we circled around to the idea of the Godhead, which was the single unifying theory that I had grown up with my entire life is that God is one. One in singular identity. That Jesus is the Father. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Those are just different titles that Jesus wore and different modalities through which Jesus interacted with humanity. And as we begin to study that, the different passages that would be brought out were chipped away at. My interpretation and the lens through which I viewed those scriptures slowly eroded as I studied with my father-in-law and as I studied with one of my wife's cousins who's a, who's a known preacher and over the course of about a year we had another there was another gospel meeting that they had with another preacher and he preached a sermon on the Godhead and when I heard it it made me mad because it was so logical It was so airtight, there was nothing that I could say to get around it. And I wasn't mad because of what he said. I was mad because it was in that moment that I realized I'm wrong. And when you realize you're wrong, there's a whole slew of emotions that come with that. It's hard to admit that you're wrong. It's hard to admit that you might be wrong because it's terrifying. It's scary, and we'll talk about that later. But I saw the logic in the scriptural teaching of a triune God. I saw the flaws in that scriptural application of the oneness position. And I broke down and cried at my father-in-law's table one afternoon. We were talking about it, and I knew that I needed to be baptized. And I was baptized that afternoon in a stagnant pool in their backyard. Because I didn't want to risk driving to the building and dying before we got there. (laughs) And that was how I came to become a part of the Churches of Christ. That was my early life. That's what led me into that. Well, over the years, I would continue to study. But the first few years within the church really weren't easy. Because from the outset, I really didn't feel like that I fit in all that well. And I never really have felt like I fit in completely. One of the struggles that my wife has shared with me is how hard it had been for her at some times to break in or to fit in with the people that are supposed to be your brothers and sisters. And that's one thing that I think that our people need to work on. That's something that I think we need to improve upon. There was one meeting that we had gone to some months after I had converted And there really wasn't anyone open to welcoming the newbie into the group. There were a few people. There were a few people who I still keep up with today and try to keep in touch with today. But by and large, it was hard to break into that. I was an outsider. And that was difficult. And it didn't help as time moved on. And don't get me wrong, I love my brethren, I've since been able to, you know, tap into that and I I feel like that I have become part of the group, so to speak, but it wasn't easy at first. But years go by and I study and I learn more about the scriptures, I study and I learn more about our faith. And whenever I say I learn more about the scriptures, what I mean is, is I learn more about the scripture as viewed through the lens of some of our traditional perspectives. And here's what I mean by that. As I grew within the church, I became confident and I became certain in my doctrinal beliefs. And the issue is is that these aren't beliefs that I had studied myself into. These are beliefs that had been inherited. And what I mean by inherited is, is that these are beliefs that had come about by studying with other people and them sharing with me their perspective on it. These are beliefs that I had inherited because I had heard other preachers preach on it. These were beliefs that were inherited because I wanted to fit in. And in order to fit in, if you show other people that you think like them, they're going to be more willing to accept you. But that doesn't mean that I was just kind of, you know, shining them on on it. I wasn't just going along to get along or just making believe like I believe this. I believed it. I adopted these positions as my own even though I didn't study them out from every possible angle to determine whether or not they were true. And some of these beliefs, I'll go ahead and elucidate these beliefs. I'll go ahead and get into them so that you can kind of know where I'm coming from here. One of the things that the beliefs that I inherited that I didn't grow up with, but there were some within my old faith tradition of oneness Pentecostalism that believed this, And there are a lot of people within the churches of Christ, the fellowship that I belong to that believe this as well, is that it's a sin for Christian women to wear pants. It's a sin for a Christian woman to wear pants because of what Deuteronomy 22 says and what 1 Timothy 2 says. There is a doctrinal belief that I have that celebrating Christmas is wrong. Now, I grew up celebrating Christmas. My dad would put lights on the house. We would put up a big tree. We had a big tradition on Christmas Eve where we would all get together and we'd all get in the living room. My grandparents and aunts and uncles would come over, and us kids would open our presents there. And then Christmas Day would go to my grandma and grandpa's house, and we would eat a big Christmas dinner and would have a few more gifts to open. And then my grandma, she might get her guitar out and play, and my dad would play the piano By the way, my dad's probably one of the best piano players you'll ever hear. He's phenomenal. And I'm not just saying that because he's my dad. He really is legit. But anyway, it was a big to-do. I grew up with Christmas. But I heard people say that celebrating Christmas was wrong. That it was a sin. And these are people that were right on so many things that I was wrong about before. So I accepted and heard their logic and went along with it. And took that perspective for myself. Another inherited doctrine is the idea that voting or participating in um, political discourse or political activity is also a sin. Now we're not unique in this. There are some of the Anabaptist tradition that also hold the same perspective, and frankly I think all politicians are crooks anyway, so I tend not to participate beyond the local level, but at that point I'd heard that, you know, if you vote, you're participating with the with the works of darkness, with the darkness of this world, because that's that's what American government or what human government is all about it's it's all about darkness it's the work of darkness it came to be you know with Noah's grandson Nimrod at the tower of babel and that's what led to that was the first government that was established and the book of daniel says that god sets kings in place and he removes kings from power and if you vote you might be voting against the person that god wants do you want to vote against god well that logic was there tied to me and so i adopted that position voting's wrong forsaking the assembly was wrong and there were and there were many other positions that i took that i interpreted okay yes this is what it this is what it means now there is absolutely nothing wrong with holding a conviction that voting is wrong especially whenever we look at the political climate in our country on the national level and even at the state level in some places it may not be something you want to get involved in there's nothing wrong with having that conviction there's nothing wrong with a christian woman having the conviction that you know i shouldn't wear these pants it's not holy i don't need to do it there's nothing wrong with that if someone has a conviction that in celebrating christmas they're committing a sin that they're committing wrong maybe the argument of christmas's pagan origins or roman catholic origins is enough for them to want to leave that behind i don't want anything to do with that i i just feel sleazy if i do that i feel like i'm sinning against god there's nothing wrong with that conviction. But whenever you begin to bind some of those convictions, when you begin to bind those convictions on others, well, now we have a problem. Now you're treading into legalism. Whenever you begin to say that if you vote, you'll lose your soul, that if you're a Christian and, a Christian sister and you wear pants, you'll lose your soul, that if you celebrate Christmas or Halloween or Easter or any of these other holidays, you're going to lose your soul. If you go to the ballot box, you're going to lose your soul. Whenever you begin to say those things, well, that's legalism. And I became as big a legalist as anyone you'd ever meet. Because having the gift of gab as I do, and having the ability to talk, and never really being afraid to get up and talk in front of people it was easy for me to step into the pulpit. There are some people that are terrified about getting up in front of a group of people and talking. That has never scared me. I have never been afraid to do that. I remember one time at, whenever I was a little boy at a youth rally that our church held. It's the first time I ever spoke in front of people. I was nervous then, but any time I'd get up and talk in front of people after that, never was. Never have been after that. It was easy for me to get up into the pulpit. It was easy for me to speak and articulate and put things together. As time went on, I became more polished, but I also became more outspoken and more bold about these things. I would preach that if you are a Christian woman and you wear pants, your soul could be in jeopardy. I would preach that if you participate in human government, that your soul is in jeopardy. That celebrating holidays is dancing with the devil. And if you do so, your soul is in jeopardy. I had stepped beyond the confines of conviction and I had began to foist those convictions and promote them from the pulpit. And I got patted on the back for it. I received hearty amens for it. I was told, good job standing for the truth, brother. And what does that do but embolden you and further entrench you within that position? But it wouldn't be long before things would start to change for me. Because it wouldn't be long that I would begin to face some doubts. And I would begin to question some of these inherited positions as I began to study. One of the things I said in the very first episode in the introduction that began to lead me out of that legalistic mindset. Let me define what I mean specifically by that. I was binding these ideas and these conclusions that I had come to on other people and teaching them as sacred, indubitable truth. That was legalistic because i was teaching them as a framework of law that this is the law of god it absolutely is And any other position that you hold to other than this if it violates this ideology then that is wrong and you'll be lost for it that's legalism that's what it is that's what i mean by the term and even if you disagree with how i'm using that sorry about you it's my podcast that's that's how i'm using it so neener but the first thing that would happen and i mentioned this and like i said in the introductory podcast is i was putting a lesson together on the different vices if you want to call them that that plague our culture that that christians should avoid and they were consuming tobacco they were drinking alcohol and they were tattoos well i was going to teach from the scriptures using a case law approach because that's really how i would make my points From a case law approach, getting a tattoo was a sin and you'd lose your soul for it. So I went over to the scriptures and I began to look and I couldn't really find the evidence that I wanted. I could find that passage in the Old Testament that spoke about putting markings on your body there in Leviticus, but I couldn't really find anything else so i began to look at the historical context this is one of the first times i've really looked at the historical context so i'm looking at leviticus and i'm looking at what it means by making marks on your body and if we read it we're going to take a moment and turn there in leviticus chapter 19 you see in verse 28 you shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead nor tattoo any marks on you I am the Lord. Well, there it is in black and white. But part of the issue is is that we teach, and I believe we teach rightfully so, that the old law, which this is a part of, was nailed to the cross with Christ. It's no longer binding upon mankind. It's no longer binding to the Christian. And I believe that that's true. But as I went to the New Testament, I couldn't find evidence That backed up my claim, not in the way that I wanted it to. And then if I really started to think about it and I looked at this, I was like, well, I'll just use Leviticus. But then I'm running into an issue because if I use Leviticus to back up this point, well, then I'm using something that's no longer binding to a Christian. Never mind that it says in verse 27, the verse immediately before it, you shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard, Well, I shave my head and I trim my beard. I do both of those things. And so I was at an impasse. Now, there are some who say that whenever you do this and you get a tattoo that you're engaging in rebellion, that tattoos are inherently associated with rebellion. And when you do that, you're showing that you're a rebellious spirit. Well, one of the problems with that line of argumentation is is that you're making an argument from culture. And so many of our And so many of the ways that we interpret things and the statements we make and the sermons we preach say that we we just need, you know, we can't just let culture be our guide, especially whenever it comes to modesty. But then we're going to say that that culture is the driving point and the driving reason why we shouldn't do that. The problem is, is that tattoos are no longer really a mark of rebellion. Every year, more and more people get tattoos and most people get tattoos in places that are not visible. They get tattoos in places that their clothing covers. I have friends and I have patients that are tattoo artists, and they've said the same thing. Statistical analysis shows that many of the common areas where people get tattoos are places where no one will see them. So if it's an outward mark of a rebellious spirit or someone who's going to stick it to the man or who's, who thinks for themselves or whatever, well, that argumentation really doesn't line up because they don't people don't get tattoos to make them visible or to make themselves more visible or to stand out if they're getting them in places where no one's really ever going to see them. Another argumentation that's made against that sometimes, and this is the direction that I thought about going is, is this idea that, well, tattoos can harm your influence with others because it makes you look more like the world. And I can see how that argument can apply in some cases, but if we're going to be consistent about it, there's some issues with that. There's a lot of times where you see people that are of a holiness predilection and we we can recognize that. We see what they what they dress like. We see what they wear. We see the the denim skirts, we see the long hair and I'm not disparaging any of that. That's what a lot of people wear in holiness circles within the Churches of Christ and also within different Pentecostal groups and holiness groups. That that's just something that you see. Well, there are people that I know, there are people that I'm related to that have been treated so harshly and so poorly by supposed Christians that dress that way. You could make the argument from the other angle. If you're saying that tattoos could harm your influence, well, because of so many people who dress in that Christian dress, I'm just going to call it, for lack of a better term, the holiness uniform, there are so many people that have been harmed by people that dress like that. They haven't been shown love. They haven't been shown charity. They've been shown harshness. They've been shown judgment. And so anytime someone, maybe someone isn't like that, they don't have that predilection in and of themselves. They they have a heart to serve Jesus. They have a desire to share Jesus with the lost. And they wear that uniform. They come to this person in the spirit of love with no judgment to share it with them. That person's not going to hear a word they have to say because of how they've been treated by others who wear that. Couldn't the argument then be made? Well, then, we don't need to dress that way because it could harm our influence with others. You see, that's a conundrum for me. That's something that I couldn't think past. And as I stated in that episode, I had to back off. I had to step away for a while. I wasn't able to continue preaching at that point on any topical idea. I stepped away from it. I just preach expository things for a while and even then I was concerned because I had been wrong before on the Godhead and through my own study I'd realized I've been misapplying this idea and I have been binding something on tattoos that I shouldn't be binding now I know that there are people that disagree with me on that I know that there are and that's okay But what I was no longer comfortable with saying was it is an absolute indubitable truth that getting a tattoo is a sin. And that if you get a tattoo, you'll go to hell. Well, as this is going along, there are some other things that begin to happen. As I'm thinking through this and I'm still rocked by this, I began to think about something else. And just as my faith was shaken after my parents' divorce or shaken, shooken, I'm not really sure which one it is, something else happened that shook my faith again. I began to look more at astronomy. I began to read more, and this is going to be something that I think the majority of our listeners will disagree with me on, and I hope you all still love me after this, because I still love all of you. And honestly, this is kind of hard. We will be devoting an entire podcast to this idea so we can flesh this idea out more. But I'm a little nervous about getting into this. I'm just going to be frank, and I'm going to be honest with you guys. This is something that I've largely kept to myself for a long time. But I began to think about the universe. I began to think about this world we live in and where it is. And I began to think about the stars. One night, I can't even remember where I was, but I was looking out at the stars and just looking at all of them. And I got to thinking about what Pumbaa said in The Lion King. These are balls of gas burning billions of miles away. They're all stuck up there in that big bluish-black thing. You remember the scene. Then I got to thinking, if we know these stars are billions of miles away, and we know how fast light travels, and we know how long it takes light to reach the Earth, how in the world am I seeing light that's a billion and a half years old, two billion years old, if the earth is only 6,000 years old. Now, I was convinced on what the Bible says about origins in Genesis 1 and 2. Under that perspective, I believe that Genesis was a historical narrative account of how everything began and that everything that it spoke of and touched on is exactly how it took place. I believe that Genesis taught absolute reality regarding the creation event. But then I'm faced with this construct that I couldn't really answer. So as I began to read more about astronomy, I began to read about redshift and the speed of light. I began to think, well, maybe something's going on with, with gravitational lensing because of the force of gravity around these stars and you know the way black holes can bend light and space-time and everything else. Maybe there's something in Einstein's general theory of relativity that can, that can put all this together for me. And the more that I read, the scarier it got. Now, there are some people who say, well, it's entirely possible and plausible, and this is the explanation that I would use until this next little domino fell, it's entirely possible and plausible that God created the universe with the appearance of age. After all, in the creation account, everything is made. He creates Adam and Eve as fully grown. He doesn't create them as infants. He creates the trees and everything else with the appearance of age. So whenever those stars were spoken to existence and they popped into place, How do we know those photons that leave that star he didn't already put into place striking the Earth? How do we know he didn't do that? And that answer was satisfactory for a little while. But there were some other tensions that would arise. In 2013, I read about something called the GULO gene. And this rocked me. G-U-L-O. And what this gene is, is this is a gene that's called a pseudogene. Now, a pseudogene is the remnant of genetic information. I'm not a geneticist, but because of my course of study, I know a lot about anatomy. I know a lot about physiology, and I know a lot about genetics. I'm no geneticist researcher, but I know enough about genetics to be able to read an a abstract paper or an abstract of a paper. I, I can read peer review literature on I can understand what it means. So this GULO gene is a pseudogene. Now, here's what a pseudogene is, and we'll get into this whenever we get into this specific podcast. A pseudogene is a genetic fragment. It's a remnant of a gene that was once present, but now it's gone. It's the pieces that mutated and broke up and are no longer functional. The human genome is primarily composed of pseudogenes. There are only several thousand real genes. The vast majority of our genetic information is bound up in pseudogenes. Now, here's what this Gulo gene does. This Gulo gene allows a mammal to convert glucose into vitamin C most mammals, a lot of mammals can create their own vitamin C by using enzymes and other things to change something into vitamin C, whether it's glucose or whether it's galactose or whether it's another sugar or whether it's another acid that that we consume in our diet, whether it's an amino acid or a fatty acid. Mammals possess the genes that allow them to convert those nutrients into vitamin C humans don't have that ability but we do have the gene for it we do have the gene now in the book remnants of eden which is a good book one of the things that the writer of that book says his name escapes me at the moment is that this gene is 98 percent identical to chimpanzees across 564 base pairs what a base pair is, is it's the block that makes up the gene. You might think about your brown eyes, or your blue eyes, or whatever color your eyes are. Your eyes are that color because of your genes and your DNA. In your DNA, your genes are made up of amino acids that make up what are called base pairs. And you have so many genes that make up, or so many base pairs rather, that make up specific genes. So with this Gulo gene, we have it, but it's been turned off. It's been decomposed. It's been deactivated. It's 98% identical to the same gene in chimpanzees. And this gene is located in the same structure in the DNA. Now, even in other types of studies, if you just take those 564 base pairs, that's pretty impressive. But that entire Um, brick or foundation for that pseudogene is about 28,800 base pairs and across the 28,800 base pairs of the gulo gene location within our genetic code there still exists an 84 percent identical overlap with chimpanzees and 87 percent in gorillas now we're getting into some science here and this is not a science podcast but what that information says is that it is just pretty much quite undeniable and incontrovertible that humanity shares a common ancestor with chimpanzees and gorillas and other primates. Now, you may disagree with me, and that's a okay. Throw that away. This isn't an issue. And this is something we'll bring up in that particular podcast. This isn't an issue for most people and it shouldn't be an issue for most people, but it was an issue for me. This is something that doesn't matter until it does. And when it matters is when the opportunity presents itself to shipwreck someone's faith. And once again, in my late twenties and early thirties, like I did whenever I was 18 years old, I found myself in a faith crisis. I couldn't reconcile this information so I started studying because surely this has to be wrong. Surely I'm looking at this through the wrong lens. This is not something that that I can readily accept because it flies in the face of what the Bible plainly teaches about where we came from. It wigged me out. I developed anxiety. I would have anxiety attacks. I became on edge. I would panic at the drop of a hat. I couldn't sleep. There were times I couldn't eat. And combined with the fact that here we are working to start a business. I'm working on getting my practice going. I'm drowning in debt. We've got one kid. We got another on the way. The practice is just getting going. All the stress was enough already. And then to compound that with this, it hit me hard. So... I withdrew for a while. I became so disenfranchised that I couldn't answer this question, and I didn't feel like I could bring this question or this fear to anyone. I would bring it to some people, and the answer would be, well, God made it that way as a test of faith, and that doesn't work for me. I looked at the fossil record. I began reading a little bit about geology. and I'm definitely not a geologist. I'm not an astrophysicist. I know a lot about anatomy and physiology and biology and genetics, but I am definitely not a geologist. But when I began to examine the evidence that existed for an ancient earth and an ancient universe, I couldn't ignore it. And saying that God made the universe with the appearance of age, that wasn't an explanation that really worked for me either. Because if that's the case, and if the heavens declare his handiwork, and through nature, his attributes are clearly seen. I'm paraphrasing, of course. It doesn't make sense that God would say, okay, the earth is only about six to 8,000 years old, but I'm going to put all this evidence for an ancient universe in place just to fool with everybody, just to mess with everybody, just to see who's really paying attention. That violates the nature of the God we read about, a God who cannot lie, a God who is not deceptive, A God who tests or tempts no man. Or tempts no man, I should say. I couldn't resolve it. How could I reconcile this? I have biology. I have genetics. I have embryology. I have geology. I have astronomy and astrophysics. Everywhere I looked, the case kept getting better and better and better for an ancient universe and for biological evolution. The heavens demonstrate massive distances between stars and that points to an ancient universe. The biological information that's out there and the discoveries that are out there aver a shared ancestry for humans and primates, not to mention other vestigial remnants of other um, genetic or biological structures, not to mention the the anatomy and the other remnants of old anatomical structures there's a lot and we'll go into those when we do the episode on origins but it was hard it was overwhelming because in genesis we have one account of how we got here but science seemed to show something else and part of the reason why this was a problem is because i had bought into that false dilemma that exists that dichotomy that exists that you either have to believe science or you have to believe the Bible. But science and scripture are not at war with each other. Not if we understand them not if we understand them appropriately and within their context. In Dennis Lemereau's book, Evolution, Scripture and Nature say yes, one of the things he says is this. For the, for most people today, the word evolution is conflated with a godless and purposeless view of the world. It forces them to believe it is impossible for an evolutionist to believe in God and in particular, the God of Christianity. Similarly, the term creation is conflated with the literal interpretation of Genesis 1. This notorious conflation drives many Christians into assuming they must reject evolution and accept six-day creationism. The problem with conflation is that it narrows the meaning of words and limits the range of possibilities regarding an issue such as origins. And that's where I found myself. I had bought into this false dilemma that science and Scripture are at war with each other and that you can't comprehend or that you you can't reconcile the two. But the issue wasn't with science. The issue wasn't with Scripture. The issue was with my understanding of Scripture. It was an understanding what Scripture is and what it isn't, what it's meant to be and what it's not meant to be. And the Scripture isn't meant to be a science textbook. The Scripture isn't meant to be a cookbook. I mean, one of the analogies that that I like using is this idea. You don't use the Bible to know how to make lamb. If you use what the Bible says about making lamb and you use that to cook lamb, it's going to be gross. It's not going to taste very good. The Bible isn't a cookbook. No one acts as though that it is. The Bible is a book designed to bring mankind and God together. It's a book that reveals God to us. It shows us who he is, that he loves us that we are created in his image and yes I do believe 100% with all my heart that we are created of God but one of the things that I came to realize is that I had been wrong on how I had been using the Bible and that's why this is important that's why I'm even bringing up the idea of origins in his book God's Word and Human Words Kenton Sparks speaks of appreciating genre and I'm going to just paraphrase what he says the Bible isn't just one long narrative it's made up of poetry it's made up of fiction yes there's fiction in the Bible Jesus's parables are fictional stories that Jesus that Jesus tells to to express a truth I mean how many times have we read Aesop's fables and we know that Aesop's fables are not literally true but they are true It's the same thing with Jesus' fables. They were stories meant to make a point about mankind. They were meant to make a point about God. They were meant to make a point about theology and how we draw near unto God and how we come to know God and what it means to live a holy life and an upright life and what it means to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. Scripture's also narrative history. We see that. Scripture's law. We see that. We see apocalyptic literature. We see songs. We see prophecy. What we see is is a generic discourse within Scripture. We see different genres, and we have to read Scripture in light of what it is. Now, while I was working through this idea, another domino that fell was one that Kevin and I just spent 14 and a half hours and seven episodes in a QA going through, and it's the concept of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I'm not going to retread all that ground. There's It's all there. Go and listen to it. But I had a friend who had approached me and said, it doesn't make any sense. They They were in a bad marriage. They were in a really bad spot. And they said, we teach that if I divorce for any reason other than my spouse committing adultery, that I can't ever marry anyone else. If I do, I can't be forgiven unless I divorce my new spouse. But if I kill him, then I can remarry without needing to be forgiven at all. You know, you can call it the Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite loophole. They say, it seems really strange that God would only forgive remarriage if my spouse dies or former spouse dies, whether by natural causes or by murder, it doesn't make sense. And it didn't make any sense. Well, I studied and discovered that I had rested and tortured the scriptures to fit my inherited doctrines and my own biases. And even at that point, I began to wonder, what else have I been wrong about? What else have I been so certain of that I've been so far afield of? Through study, I learned that the conclusions that I was so certain of were either somewhat mistaken and others were just loud and wrong. But folks, I preached those things from the pulpit in the various congregations that I had taught at, and it was humbling and frustrating and maddening and terrifying to see how wrong I had been about so many things. And even if I was correct on some of those things doctrinally, bullying people from the pulpit was wrong. And over time, I began to wonder if I've been wrong about tattoos, if I've been wrong about origins, if I've been wrong about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and these other things because of how I've read the Bible, what else could I be wrong about? I was wrong about the Godhead previously, so it was a little less uncomfortable to confront the idea that I might be wrong again, but it was still terrifying. And the reason why it was so terrifying and so scary for me to admit that I might be wrong is because my salvation was subconsciously predicated on having all the right answers and in all of this I didn't feel like I could bring any of this to my brethren because if I'm wrong about this what else could I be wrong about and if one domino falls what other dominoes are going to fall and if I'm right about this well then am I really if I'm wrong about this am I really saved at all? And the thing is, is people will say, no, no, we don't teach that. We don't teach that you have to know everything. But we imply it a lot of times, especially when people preach in the style that I did. And I'm not the only one that preached in that style. Kevin will tell you he preached the same way in his brotherhood whenever he preached. I know that others preach that way because I emulated their style. I preached the way they preached. I preached in the way that was popular for a lot of people. I preached in a way that people appreciated and would respond to. Even if it upset others, and I know that it did, and I regret that it did, I still did it. But I'm not alone in that fear of being able to bring these doubts and these thoughts and these questions to to the people that are supposed to help me bear these burdens. We're afraid to be vulnerable with each other. We're afraid to reveal that we don't have all the answers because whenever you're entrenched in legalism and making sure that you're doing everything right and your salvation hinging on that, whenever that's the case, you're either going to be terrified that you've missed something, like I was and so many others are, or you're not going to be afraid at all and you're going to be so pompous and arrogant, like I was, that I've got it all figured out and I've got all the answers, and I can't possibly admit that I might be wrong. And because of that posture, we can't be vulnerable because we can't clue people into our fears. Why do you doubt that? Oh, you don't need to doubt that. You know the answers, you know what's right, you know what the truth is. Do I, though? That's what the person in fear says, while the person in arrogance berates them for it. We can't be vulnerable. Because if we've projected that air of knowledge and knowing it all and having the right answers and knowing that we know that we know that we know that we are right about, about all of these things, then to show vulnerability, people will begin to assume, oh, well, that brother, why he's confused. Oh, that brother, all oh, that Lee, did you hear about how confused he is? Why he thinks the world's three and a half four billion years old oh he's so confused who wants people to look at you that way no one wants to be looked at in that way we can't be vulnerable with each other we're afraid to have discussions with each other to discuss our questions or our struggles we're afraid to do that because we don't want to be castigated we don't want to be looked down upon and we're afraid of that. We're afraid of being looked down upon because we struggle with the concept of having all the right answers. Or we struggle with the concept of God's grace. Or we struggle with the concept of you know, doubting our own salvation or whatever else. People are scared to be vulnerable because they fear judgment by those in their family. They fear judgment by those in their congregation. They fear judgment by their brethren. We're supposed to help bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And some of these burdens are some of the biggest burdens we'll ever have, but we're not comfortable enough to share them with each other. And the reason why we're not is because of the type of preaching that I engaged in and that so many others engage in today. So much certainty is presented from the pulpit. And the implication is that if you don't see this or you don't agree with this or this, well, you're just wrong and you're bound for hell. So much certainty is presented from the pulpit on certain issues that are not clear in Scripture that people are afraid to voice contrary ideas. And they're not voicing contrary ideas from rebellion. That's not what I'm talking about here. There are some people that are rebellious, there are some people that no matter what you say, they're going to try to argue with you just because they can. There are people who will see the truth on whatever topic you want to throw at them. They'll see it. They'll recognize it. And they'll say, no, nope, I don't buy it. I see what you're saying. And I agree that it's right, but I'm not going to do it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people that are sincere of heart. These are people that have a desire to be pleasing the God and whenever they hear preaching of the style that I used to preach they're afraid to vo- voice any contrary ideas they're afraid that they'll that the hammer will be dropped on them and whenever that happens that creates cognitive dissonance cognitive dissonance is is whenever you have one idea swirling in your mind but there's an expected behavior or an expected expectation or conclusion or ideology that you're supposed to hold to and what you're thinking in your mind is warring with what you're putting out there to the public. It's hypocrisy is what it is. It's a product of hypocrisy. And if that's left unresolved, it leads to destruction. What happens is, is it's like, there's no way I can possibly know all these things. There's no way I can possibly live up to all of these expectations. There's no, po- there's no way that it's possible that I can do all this. It's so hard. Life is so hard. And if I can't do it, why should I even bother? Why should I even try? And that's where I was for a while. I was ready to give it up. Lots of discouragement over time and not being able to share this and be vulnerable with my brethren. And it was hard. And I'm not alone. In a survey that one brother told me about that our fellowship put out it received a pretty good response one of the questions was asked do you feel comfortable going to your you know to your local preacher, congregation, evangelist elders, deacons, brethren with any of these issues and they were things like alcoholism or pornography or sexual immorality or you know those other things those moral sins and moral quandaries and the overwhelming response over 90% was no no I'm not. And it was because of the fear of judgment and the fear of castigation. And it's because we tend to be so harsh with those who don't see things exactly like we do on certain things, on certain topics. And if they don't see things exactly like we do, well, instead of helping them work through that doubt and helping guide them through it, well, they become a project that we have to get to think exactly like we do. And what's sad is, is I still succumb to that even now. It's hard to break that cycle. The vast majority of the feedback that we've received on this podcast have been from people who feel the same way. These are people who experience this. And why is that? Why is it that a majority of our people are afraid to speak up when they have questions? Why is it that the majority of our people are afraid to share when they may hold a different position than the status quo and they hold it in good faith they hold it in good conscience but they're afraid to express it it's because we have people that say things like well it's okay if you hold a different opinion but just keep it to yourself now i can't speak for everyone but it seems to me that part of the reason for this and i could be completely wrong i always reserve the right to be wrong but it seems that we stake our salvation on our certainty that we figured it out I know that's, that's where I was, and it seems to be that's where a lot of people are. We can know our doctrinal framework, and we can know where we are by answering this question. How do I know that I'm saved? So I want you to think about that for a minute, you listeners out there. How do I know that I'm saved? And think about your answer. Hold it in your mind for a moment. Now, did you answer that question like this? Because I've placed my faith in Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm trying to be like Jesus in everything that I do and be obedient to the will of the Father? Or did you answer it like this? I know that I'm saved because I've been baptized for the remission of my sins. I know that I'm saved because I go to church on Sunday. I know I'm saved because I observe the Lord's supper on the first day of every week. I know that I'm saved because I observe the Lord's supper with one loaf and with one cup. I know that I'm saved because I don't worship with musical instruments in worship. I know that I'm saved because I give my means on the first day of the week. I know that I'm saved because our church doesn't use Sunday school. I know that I'm saved because I'm a man and I don't grow my hair long, or I know I'm saved because I'm a woman and I don't cut my hair. I know that I'm saved because I don't wear shorts or pants if I'm a woman. I know that I'm saved because I don't believe in evolution. I know that I'm saved because I don't believe in pre-millennialism or postmillennialism or realized eschatology. I know that I'm saved because I believe in a, the eternal conscious torment view of hell. Or I know that I'm saved because I believe in penal substitutionary atonement. And you can go on and on. Now, how'd you answer that question? Because if you answer that question in the first way, well, then it seems like that's a healthier response than the second one. Because that second response says, I'm saved because I have done X, Y, Z. Now, that doesn't mean that we're free to just do whatever we want. People said that that's one of the things Kevin and I have said, oh, I can just do whatever I want, even though we did an entire podcast about how that's not what that means following jesus and placing one's faith in jesus and being a disciple of jesus does not negate the need for obedience i want to be clear on that but if you answer the question i know that i'm saved because i have done these things your salvation then subconsciously is based on you and what you have done and on what you know but what if there's something you don't know What if there's a thread that your study of Scripture, you haven't pulled that thread yet? What if there's a nugget of truth that you haven't yet mined? What if you don't know it all? And I think that if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we would all say, I don't know it all, because I don't. Is your faith in Jesus, or is your faith in your ability to understand everything? Now, I want there to be no mistake made. I love our preachers. I love their preaching. I love how our brethren reveal God's truth from the pulpit. But so often there are undertones and undercurrents and implications in the way that message is presented in which we subconsciously take on the idea that our faith is based on what we do and as an inference of that, it's based on what we know. So what if we don't know everything? Now, I want to circle back around to this idea. Following Jesus doesn't mean that obedience is unnecessary. That's some of the other negative feedback that we got. It seems that the, that some believe that we left the impression that obedience isn't really necessary, And some, like I said at the top of this episode, took issue with the term legalist. Well, listen, it isn't legalist to state that Christ demands fidelity to him. It isn't legalistic to state that Christians are called to a higher standard of living and of worship and morality than those that are in the world. It isn't legalistic to recognize those standards and apply them and to preach them. But what I had done wasn't that. My faith was placed in myself. My faith was placed in my ability to understand all of Scripture in perfect clarity. Now, I believe that the Scriptures are clear on who God is, on who Jesus is, and how we are to know Him and make Him known. I don't think the Bible could get any plainer about that. But there are some things that the Bible is not clear about. And we might never know the full answer to some of those more opaque things. What I had done was elevate my interpretation and my conclusion to the level of infallibility that's reserved for the scripture and scripture alone. And that is arrogance, pure and simple. If I can't admit that I might be wrong, then I am too arrogant to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. The Bible is infallible but I'm not my understanding is finite but my God is infinite my brain and my level of comprehension will only go so far in understanding the eternal infinite infallible truths that God declared and revealed through his inspiration of the Holy Spirit to those men that wrote those things in the long ago the Bible is an ancient diverse book written by ancient diverse people to ancient and diverse people I am 2,000 years removed from the closing of the canon, if we want to put it that way. For me to say that my conclusions I used to hold on the condemnable practice of women wearing pants or men having long hair getting tattoos or divorcing or remarrying for any reason other than adultery or celebrating Christmas or Halloween or Easter or other holidays and other things... For me to say that that's absolutely the only way that those scriptures can be interpreted and that anyone who thinks otherwise or who through careful prayerful study comes to a different conclusion, they just don't love the truth. That's arrogance beyond the pale. And that's the type of thinking that we need to get away from. But that's the type of thinking that seems to be in high demand in some circles. That's the type of thinking that gets the pats on the back and the boys" and the good job, brother, for holding up the truth. Brethren, we need to recognize that we've put our faith in our own ability to understand and interpret. We've put our faith in us rather than in Jesus. And when I realized that I didn't know as much as I thought I did, and I accepted that I had been wrong before and that I was probably wrong now, that realization led to a much greater appreciation for the grace of God. Because my salvation isn't based on having all the right answers to all the questions. And I'll just tell you straight up, y'all, I still struggle with that. My salvation is not based on attaining a complete, perfect, flawless, indubitable knowledge and interpretation of every single dot and tittle from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. My salvation rests in Christ and Christ alone. I am His. I follow him. I am his disciple. And what that means is, I don't just say, I belong to Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. My heart belongs to him. It's not just that, there's more to it than that. I desire to be well pleasing unto him. I desire to align my thoughts and my wants with his thoughts and his wants. I desire to make his ways my ways and my ways, his ways. I seek to align myself and conform to his image in how I live my life. Peter said in Second Peter chapter 1 and in verses 5 through 8, he said, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. And then he goes on to talk about those other things in verses 6, 7, and 8. And in verse 8, after he talks about self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love, he says for if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what that means is is that we are to always grow. But if I think that I've got truth on lock as I did for so long, I'm not going to grow. My growth's going to stop there. Why do I need to grow if I already have it all figured out? All of God's people are to grow in knowledge. But to think that we can attain perfect and complete knowledge and understanding in this realm is to imply that at some point we stop growing. We've leveled up as high as we can go. There's nothing else to learn. I've got it all figured out. No one would ever really say that. But in some of the conversations that I've had, it seems that that's implied strongly. We mature. We grow. But we never stop growing. Asking questions... Questioning our doctrines, questioning our hermeneutics, questioning our philosophy and our deeply held convictions is a part of that growth. I've heard others say that we don't need to question those things. If you question those things, your faith is weak. No, questioning things is a sign of a strong faith. Moses questioned. Elijah questioned. Job questioned. Paul questioned. It's okay to question things. It's okay to explore our faith. And it should be okay to bring those questions and those concerns to our brethren. We shouldn't fear castigation. We need to be more humble with one another. We need to be more kind with one another. We need to be more tender-hearted and long-suffering toward one another. Because for every person out there that's like me that has had these questions and has been able to reconcile them and has been able to work through them, there are just as many others that haven't. There are just as many that have given up because they can. there's no possible way that they can live up to the impossible standard that they believe they have to uphold in order to make it to heaven. There are people who believe, if I can't possibly live up to that, then why even bother? Why not just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die? And folks, that's not good. That's not a place anyone wants to be. It's not a place that we want our brothers and sisters in Christ to be. And that's what this podcast is about. That's why Kevin and I started it in the first place. Because Kevin and I are both seekers. Kevin and I... Disagree on a good many things. And we're going to get into some of those disagreements and things that we don't see eye to eye on in future episodes. And it's going to be really entertaining. It's going to be really interesting and thought provoking. It's going to be a good time. But we're both seekers. We are both respectfully and humbly exploring our faith. And through that exploration, he and I both grow more and more and more appreciative each and every day of how wonderful and how far-reaching God's mercy is because the God we serve is a merciful God and he's not, I believe this with all my heart, he's not going to nail me for the things that I might not know. He's not going to nail me for some of the misunderstandings I have in good faith if I'm seeking Him and I'm pursuing Him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. Now, Some may disagree with that, and that's okay. But I found much comfort, and I found so much peace in knowing that my salvation doesn't rest on me having all the answers. My faith and my salvation... Is placed in christ and in him alone and my duty on this earth is to conform to his image and to be like him and to be obedient to the will of the father that pretty well wraps up this episode that's my story and i feel like i preached a little bit oh wow over an hour and 20 minutes didn't intend to talk that long but how many times do we say that Once again, I want to thank you all for listening. We thank you. We love you. We appreciate you all so much. Like this podcast. Share it with your friends. Give us that five-star review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. And we look forward to you tuning in again. Thanks again.